And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today's August the 18th, 230th day of the year. 135 days remain until the year's over with. Holidays and observances, since you all asked for them. National Couples Day. Doesn't say couple of what, but National Couples Day. National Fajita Day. I used to enjoy those. Gold Cup Parade. Citizens of Charlottetown throw a party and everybody turns out. Green Man Festival. That's in Wales. Hawaiian Shirt Day. Indonesia Constitution, Constitution Day. Kool-Aid Day. Long Tan Day. It's a uh, not about getting a good tan. It's a solemn remembrance day. National Angela Day. National Bad Poetry Day. National Ice Cream Pie Day. National Jaden Day. National Mail Order Catalog Day. National Men's Grooming Day. Now going back to National uh, Mail Order Catalog Day. I remember growing up when I'd visit my grandparents in Arkansas. Forget the Charmin. Everybody had Sears and Roebuck catalogs. And to be in thousands and thousands of outhouses and the company go under, did they never hear the internet? Never give up day. Pinot Noir day. Serendipity day. World Breast Cancer Research Day. Alrighty. Let's see what else we got. 684 AD. Battle of Mars Rahit. Yumayyad partisans defeat the supporters of Ibn al Zubayr and cement Yumayyad uh, control of Syria. 707. Princess Abi accedes to the Imperial Japanese throne as Empress Jinmai. 1304, the Battle of Mons and Pevely is fought to draw between the French army and the Flemish militia. 1487, Siege of Malaga ends with the taking of the city by Castilian and Aragonese forces. 1492, the first grammar of the Spanish language is presented to Queen Isabella. 1570, and education went to crap after that when you had to learn grammar. 1572, the Huguenot King Henry III of Navarre marries the Catholic Margaret of Valois, ostensibly to reconcile the feuding Protestants and Catholics of France. Didn't quite work out that way. 1590, John White, governor of the Roanoke Colony, returns from a supply ship uh, to England and finds the settlement deserted to include his granddaughter, Virginia Dare, the first European that we know of. Born in a New World. 1612, Trial of the Pendle Witches, one of England's most famous witch trials, begins in Lancaster Assizes. 1634, Urban Grandier, accused and convicted of sorceries, burned alive in Loudun, France. 1721, the city of Shimaki in Safavid Shirvan is sacked. 1783, a huge fireball meteor seen across Great Britain as it passes over the East Coast. 
1809, the Synod of Finland was established in the Grand Duchy of Finland after the official adoption of the Statute of the Government Council by Tsar Alexander I of Russia. Eighteen twenty-six, Major Gordon Lang becomes the first European to enter Timbuktu. Eighteen thirty-eight, the Wilkes expedition, which would explore the Puget Sound and Antarctica, weighs uh, anchor at Hampton Roads. Eighteen forty-eight, Camilla O'Gorman and Ladislao Guterres are executed on the orders of Argentine dictator Juan Manuel de Rosas. Eighteen sixty-four, American Civil War. Battle of Globe Tavern. Union forces try to cut a vital Confederate supply line in the Petersburg, Virginia by attacking the Wilmington and Weldon Railroad. 1868, French astronomer Pierre Janssen discovers helium. 1870, Franco-Prussian War. Battle of Gravelote is fought. 1877, American astronomer S.F. Hall discovers Phobos, one of Mars's moons. 1891, a major hurricane strikes Martinique, leaves 700 dead. 1903, German engineer Karl Hotho allegedly flies his self-made motor-divided airplane four months before the first flight of the Wright brothers. But he didn't have as good a publicist as the Wright brothers did. 1917, a great fire in Thessalonica, Greece, destroys 32% of the city. Left 70,000 individuals homeless. 1920, the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution is ratified, guaranteeing women's suffrage. 1923, the first British track and field championships for women are held in London, Great Britain. 1933, the Volksen is first presented to the German public at a radio exhibition. The presiding Nazi minister of uh, propaganda, Joseph Goebbels, delivers an accompanying speech holding the Holding the radio as the eighth great power. 1937. Lightning strike starts the Blackwater Fire of 1937 in Shoshone National Forest. Kills 15 firefighters within three days and prompts the U.S. Forest Service to develop their smoke jumper program. 1938. Thousand Islands Bridge connecting New York with Ontario, Canada over the St. Lawrence River is dedicated by President Franklin Roosevelt. 1940, World War II, the hardest day air battle. Part of the Battle of Britain takes place. At that point, it's the largest aerial engagement in history with heavy losses sustained on both sides. 1945, Sukarno takes office as the first president of Indonesia, following the country's uh, declaration of independence the previous day. 1945, Soviet-Japanese War. Battle of Shimshu. Soviet forces land at uh, Takedo Beach on Shimshu Island launched the Battle of Shimshu. Soviet Union's invasion of the Kurel Islands commences. 1949, Kimmy Bloody Thursday. Two protesters die in the scuffle between the police and the strikers protesting a protest procession in Kimmy, Finland. 1950, Julian Lahalt, the chairman of the Communist Party of Belgium, is assassinated. Party newspaper blames royalists and Rexists. 1958, Vladimir Nabokov's controversial novel Lolita is published in the U.S. 1958, Brojan Das from Bangladesh swims across the English Channel in a competition as the first Bengali and the first Asian um, 
to do so. Placed first among 39 competitors. 1963 Civil Rights Movement. James Meredith becomes the first African American to graduate from the University of Mississippi. Took the National Guard to get him in there. 1965 Vietnam War. Operation Starlight begins. U.S. Marines destroy a Viet Cong stronghold on uh, the Van Tong Peninsula in the first major American ground battle of the war. And we would have won if we'd have got up the suits out of it. Wars are to be carried out by those militarily trained, not by folks who, because they're elected, think they're an expert in everything. 1971, America, Vietnam War. I'm sorry, 1966. The Battle of Long Tan ensues after a patrol from the 6th Battalion on Australian Regiment clashes with Viet Cong Force in Phuc Toi Province. 1971, Vietnam War. Australia and New Zealand decide to withdraw their troops from Vietnam. 1973, Aeroflot Flight A-13 crashes after takeoff from Baku Bina International Airport in Azerbaijan. Kills 56 people and injures 8. 1976, the Korean axe murder incident in Panmunjom results in the death of two U.S. Army officers. They were supervising the cutting down of a tree at the DMZ. And North Vietnamese appeared from every direction, uh, swinging axes, and killed the two officers. In fact, I was supposed to replace one of those officers. Um... The colonel thought that I needed a little bit of uh, discipline. He thought Korea could instill in me. Didn't work out that way. 1976, Soviet Union's robotic probe, Lunar 24, successfully lands on the moon. 1976, uh, excuse me, 1977, Steve Biko was arrested at a police roadblock under Terrorism Act number 83, 1967, and King Williamstown in South Africa. He later dies from injuries he got during the arrest, bringing attention to South Africa's apartheid policies. 1983, Hurricane Alicia hits the Texas coast, kills 21, and causes over a billion dollars in damage in 1983 dollars. 1989, leading peaceful, uh, leading presidential hopeful, Luis Carlos Galan, is assassinated near Bogota, Colombia. 1993, American International Airways Flight 808 crashes at the Leeward Point Field in Guantanamo Bay, Naval Base in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Injures three crew members. 2003, one-year-old Zachary Turner is murdered in Newfoundland by his mother, who was awarded custody despite facing trial for the murder of Zachary's father. And that shows what kind of genius judge was sitting on the bench. Case was documented in a film, Dear Zachary, under the reform of Canada's bail laws. 2005, a massive power blackout hits the Indonesian island of Java. Affects almost 100 million people. It's one of the largest and most widespread power outages in history. 2008, the president of Pakistan, Pervez Mushara, resigns under threat of impeachment. 2008, war of Afghanistan, the Uzbin Valley ambush occurs. For those who are not familiar with it, French uh, International Security Assistance Force troops were ambushed by Afghan Taliban insurgents with heavy casualties. 
in the Uzban Valley outside the village of Spurakunde in the uh, Sarobi district of Kabul province in eastern Afghanistan. Uh, in the Afghan ambush and subsequent counterattack operations involved reinforcements. Ten French soldiers were killed as well as Afghan interpreter. Twenty-one French soldiers as well as two to four Afghan soldiers were wounded and 20 to 40 civilians were killed. Casualties for the French Army with the highest single-day loss since the 1983 Beirut barracks bombings, which killed uh, 58 French soldiers. In 2011, a terrorist attack on um, Israel's Highway 12 near the Egyptian border killed 16 and injured 40. 2017, the first terrorist attack ever sent, the first terrorist attack ever sentenced as a crime in Finland kills two and injures eight. 2019, 100 activists, officials, and other concerned citizens in Iceland hold a funeral for Okjokul Glacier, which is completely melted after it once covered six square miles. And of course, the loony left runs around screaming global warming like Chicken Little. Well, yesterday we were talking about Jack the Axeman who terrorized New Orleans. And uh, this was back during 1918 and 1919. And of course, no one was ever prosecuted. No one appeared to know who did anything to anybody. But the attacks... Um, just simply stopped. And that led everybody to believe that the the killer had either died or been arrested. Um, The surviving spouse of one of the men killed uh, eventually shot a man by the name of Mumphrey in uh, Los Angeles and said he was the one who had come in and killed her husband. Now, if there'd been no evidence that Mumphrey might not be the killer, then whether she was correct or not, um, that put an end to this case. In spite of rumors to the contrary, the killings didn't stop. So Mumphrey clearly was not Jack the X-Man. And I started to tell you yesterday about uh, the fact that Jack moved to Alexandria, Louisiana, a small town in Rapides Parish, about 200 miles northwest of uh, New Orleans. It's in almost the center of the state. Now, it was December 1920 when a very bloody murder took place in Alexandria. It's about one o'clock in the morning on a cold December morning when Rosa Sparrow abruptly woke. She sensed more than saw a presence in her bedroom. And then she saw this figure attack her husband and it turned its bloody weapon on her. And she clearly saw the axe swinging at her head. But when it connected, that put her lights out. Woke up about three hours later to find her husband dead and her 20-month-old daughter unconscious and bleeding. 
Her five boys were asleep, unharmed, in the next room. Holding her bleeding infant in her arms, she ran out of the house screaming for help. When the police arrived, they discovered Joseph, uh, the husband, had bled out. Now, the similarities between this attack and the New Orleans Axeman killings were startling, though uh, the authorities apparently didn't appreciate the similarities. Joseph and Rosa Sparrow were Italian proprietors of a grocery store, as were most of the victims in New Orleans. Killers came into the house to an open window, but he used an axe he took from the backyard and a butcher knife he took from the groceries. Left behind a railroad coupling pin, showing at least a minimum connection to the railroad that ran through the town. In the initial attack on Joseph Sparrow, the killer had broken his jaw and sliced his throat. Now, Rosa was cut as well, but not as severely as her husband. Her infant daughter died of her injuries. And like the New Orleans attacks, though there was money in the house, nothing was taken. No suspects were identified. The black carpenter who had done work for the Sparrows was arrested when he was found to have uh, blood on his clothing. Of course, after a legitimate investigation took place, he was released, and no further suspects were identified. On January 14, 1921, in Derrida, Louisiana, we have our next visit from Jack the Axeman. This was a small town about 70 miles southwest of Alexandria. Giovanni John Orlando was found sliced and bloody along with his wife and two small children. He was rushed to the hospital, but he died in surgery. And once again, the killer entered the house through an open window. And though there was money available in the house, nothing was taken. Also left behind, laying beside the body of Giovanni, his, the killer's weapon of choice, a bloody axe. Mary Orlando and her two children, who had been sleeping in their parents' bed, were all badly cut but survived their injuries. And as in the earlier attacks, no suspects were identified. Though the police immediately arrested a black man who was described as a half-witted Negro, but he was shortly released. But if you notice, the knee-jerk reaction of the police is to grab him a black. Now, from DeRider... Let's go to Lake Charles, Louisiana. This event took place in the early hours of April 12, 1921. Lake Charles, a small town about 50 miles south of DeRider, another similar killing took place. About 3 o'clock in the morning when Marlena Scalisi ran screaming from her home calling for help. Her neighbors converged on her home to find Miss Scalise covered in blood while her husband Frank was lying on the bed, his neck broken. Scalise's had five children, one of whom slept with the parents, the other four slept in another room. They also ran a small grocery out of their home to supplement Frank's wages from his job at the Powell Lumber Company. Now, in this particular case, the murderer had entered the home through an open window carrying an old axe he found in a neighbor yard. And after he entered, he used the axe to immediately kill Frank and then raised his weapon to kill the sleeping mother and child. Well, at this point, the killer ran into a bit of a problem. 
You see, the axe he grabbed from the neighboring yard was old and had been properly cared for by its owner. So as his weapon descended toward the sleeping woman and child, the head of the axe came off from the axe handle and hit the wall, which made a loud noise, which woke up the woman and her child. The old wooden handle did hit the sleeping woman, but it didn't do much harm. At her scream, the intruder ran out of the room. Marlena grabbed her sleeping baby and ran into the adjoining room where her ten-year-old daughter Mary was sleeping. She gave the baby to Mary before running outside to call for help from the neighbors. Well, Mary had been awakened by the noise and the screams and got a good look at the assailant described him as a short, stout, and black. Now, this, of course, raised a number of questions to include whether or not this was Jack the Axeman from New Orleans. It had been described by more than one witness as being a white man. Well, there's no question the modus operandi in the reported axe murders was similar enough to support the thesis that the same man did all the killings. However, none of the victims could identify who attacked them, and the few witnesses, the few witnesses that did exist would have little help. Though several were arrested and two were tried and convicted, it was later clear the witnesses had lied in order to get the two convictions that did take place and were forced to later retract their testimony. Officials were just happy to be able to mark the case closed on these murders and would have indicted a ham sandwich if it could have mollified the terrified public. Evidence be damned. But whoever the killer known as Jack the Axeman might have been, he was never identified, and certainly his identity has never been brought to light over the years. It's still a case I'm told. Uh, it's not quite cold, but neither is it hot. And even if we had more axe murderers today, probably wouldn't be the same person. Might be a son or a grandson. Now, the next unsolved case is actually made quite famous by none other than Edgar Allan Poe. He wrote a book called, the, or the story, rather, The Mystery of Marie Loger, published in 1842. And though he did nothing to solve the case he based his story on, he did call national attention to the matter. Now, we've put Poe's story aside for the moment. The actual murder victim was a beautiful young woman by the name of Marie, oh, excuse me, Mary Cecilia Rogers. Believed to have been born 1820 in Lyme, Connecticut, and was found dead July 28, 1841. That was when her lifeless body was pulled out of the Hudson River. And though her murder was never solved, it became a national sensation involving a number of very prominent people. Now, all who knew her agreed that Mary Rogers was a truly beautiful young woman. Worked as a tobacco store in a tobacco store in New York City and was frankly showcased by the uh, proprietors and incentive to get more customers to come into the store since it was clear her beauty brought in a large number of customers. Many very distinguished men of the time who might not otherwise have favored his store with their trade if she'd not been there to, let's say, help them with their purchases. No, there were no contemporary rumors of her having any affairs with some of her famous and wealthy customers. There was certainly a possibility. When her body was found dumped in the Hudson River, most assumed she'd been the victim of gang violence and the police did not attempt to dissuade those who... Uh, Reach that conclusion. You know, even today, law enforcement in 
that area quite often is influenced by who's involved. Now, this would probably have been the end of the story had not a witness come forward to claim that Mary had been dumped in the river after dying during a failed abortion attempt. And it was true that her boyfriend's suicide note suggested a possible involvement on his part, but there was never any evidence revealed that she might have been pregnant. Lived in a boarding house run by her mother, Phoebe Rogers. Father died in a steamboat explosion when she was 17. Deciding she needed to obtain employment in part to help her mother, she got a job at a tobacco shop owned by John Anderson. Got a very generous salary in large part due to her beauty, not for any skills she might possess in the way of retail experience. And it should be noted that her customers weren't shy in expressing their admiration for her beauty. One well-to-do individual spoke of spending an entire afternoon in a store exchanging teasing glances with a young woman. Another even published a poem in the New York Herald discussing her heaven-like smile. I mean, she found favor with the likes of James Fenimore Cooper, Washington Irving, Fitz Green Halleck, an American poet and a personal secretary and advisor to John Jacob Astor, one of the wealthiest men in the country. In addition to the involvement of such prominent men of the day, there were also a number of news reports that seemed to mark her as being somewhat unstable. I mean, let's face it, it's interesting to, that a mere clerk in a tobacco shop would rate such news coverage, but she did. For example, October 5, 1838, the New York Sun reported that Miss Mary Cecilia Rogers had disappeared from her home. According to the Sun, Phoebe Rogers, Mary's mother, reportedly found a suicide note that the local coroner analyzed and said revealed a deep and unalterable determination to destroy herself. I mean, there was even an entire book written about the beautiful cigar girl by Daniel Stashauer in 2006. Penguin Books published it. However, on October 6, 1838, the Times and Commercial Intelligence printed a story that said that the disappearance of Mary Rogers was a hoax and she only went to visit a friend living in Brooklyn. Of course, there was no evidence supporting either the disappearance or the friend living in Brooklyn. And as we've seen, especially in reporting on Trump and all his indictments, truth is not really a factor in a lot of the stories that are coming out. It should also be noted it was the New York Sun that was involved in the Great Moon Hoax of 1835, which referred to a series of six articles beginning August 25, 1835, that reported the discovery of life and a civilization on the moon. These discoveries that were supposedly reprinted from the Edinburgh Current were attributed to the astronomer Sir John Herschel. Unfortunately for the Sun, these articles turned out to be false. They were said to have actually been written by Richard Adams Locke, a reporter who worked for the Sun. Many believe the story of the disappearance of Mary Rogers was itself another hoax. When she returned to work, one paper reported there was a major publicity stunt orchestrated by John Anderson himself. July 25th, 1841, Mary Rogers told her fiancé, Daniel Payne, she was going to visit her aunt and some other family members. However, July 28, 1841, the police found her corpse floating in the Hudson River near Hoboken, New Jersey. And due to the number of prominent people she associated with, it was no wonder that the case gained such national attention. 
Well, the details that came out in the case suggest that she had been murdered. Or maybe her body was dumped in the river by abortionist Madame Restel after a failed procedure. Now, Madame Restel was a famed abortionist, but her name was actually Anne Tro Loman. Now, there was no evidence that the young lady had actually been pregnant. Also, we remember in 1841, abortions were not illegal in New York, so why dump the body in the river? But it'd been much easier just to call the police and say she died. Come get her. No harm, no foul. Well, during the extended inquest held into Mary's death, her fiancé, Daniel Payne, committed suicide October 7, 1841, overdosed on laudanum during a bout of heavy drinking. Allegedly left a suicide note that was found among the papers on his person when he died. And according to the press, that note said, uh, To the world, here I am on the very spot. May God forgive me for my misspent life. Now, the wording was certainly peculiar. It led many to believe he had something to do with Mary's death, although he'd never actually been accused of involvement. No evidence ever surfaced that tied him to her death. Certainly, 1841, if one was very careful, getting away with murder was a definite possibility. But in regard to the death of Mary Rogers, it, uh, though it rose to national prominence, this story was something that was uh, pushed out of the limelight as soon as possible. After all, some of her many admirers are men of national, maybe international, reputation. If she died during an abortion, who was the purported father? Certainly couldn't have been any of these rich, famous men. As an example of those who could have been caught up in the uh, investigation, Fritz Green Halleck, a known admirer of the young woman, was one of the initial trustees of the Astor Library. Her smell of impropriety would have led to a major embarrassment, not only for Halleck, but for Astor himself. And it should be kept in mind that uh, law enforcement in New York at the time went above taking a bribe to look the other way. Well, that's still the case today. When Frederica Loss came forward in November 19, of 1842 and claimed Mary died during a failed abortion, police not only refused to believe this would be a witness, but also refused to even investigate the possibility. Now, this was a case Taylor made for DNA, if there ever was one. If Mary did die during a botched abortion, though only the press claimed such a reason for her death, why did her mother or fiancé not come forward to support this possibility? Did her mother know she was pregnant? Certainly she would have had. I got the hiccups. She would have had to. And the authorities never really investigated this possibility. It seemed that even local law enforcement that would become the famed NYPD wanted this case closed quickly. So you have to ask yourself, why would that be the case? Who was pulling the strings of the, what became the NYPD? Well, we talked about Jack the Axe Man. And apparently, for the time, axes were readily available. You didn't have to clean them or reload them. And they had many uses. For example, between 1898 and 1912, entire families across the country were killed in their sleep by an unknown individual with an axe. Due to the lack of communication between law enforcement agencies, each of these killings was actually treated as an isolated event. At the time, the very concept of a serial killer was unheard of. However, without a doubt, the 
Vilisca axe murders qualifies the work of a serial killer. The story begins with the Moore family. Father Josiah, Mother Sarah, and the children, Herman, Mary, Arthur, and Paul. They were a very well-off and well-known family in the town of Villisca, Iowa. In addition to everything else that the, the Moors had, they were big workers in the local Presbyterian church. In fact, on the evening of June 9th, 1912, the entire family was at church for the Children's Day program. And as was customary in this tight-knit town where everybody knew everybody, when the Moore family left for their home about 9.30 p.m., they took with them two friends and her 10-year-old daughter, Mary, 8-year-old Ina Stillinger and 12-year-old Lena Stillinger. They were going to spend the night with Mary. Based on the distance the Moore house was from the church, the Moore family and their guests arrived home about uh, 10 p.m. The evidence shows they had a light snack of milk and cookies before going to bed. It was early on the morning of June 10th when Mary Peckham, the Moore's elderly neighbor, glanced out her window and became concerned. Immediately felt something wasn't right. The Moore house hall was much too quiet. The curtains were drawn tightly over the windows and nobody had come out to begin the morning chores. And to her, this was highly unusual. Went outside and saw the chickens were still in their pens and she could hear the horses neighing in their stalls in the barn. And as a concerned rose, she walked slowly over to the front door and knocked loudly. Didn't get an answer, so she tried the front door and it was locked. She tried to peek into windows, but the curtains were drawn down tightly. She just knew something was wrong. Going back to her own home, she called uh, Ross Moore, Josiah Moore's brother. He went to the front door and knocked. He even shouted for his brother, but he got, didn't get a response either. His own concern rising, he used his own key to open the front door and entered the dark house, leaving Mary standing on the front porch. Slowly and quietly, he crossed the front parlor and opened a door to the downstairs guest room. Inside, he found two bodies lying in the bed, faces covered with an overcoat, and the headboard of the bed was covered with cast-off blood. Well, not wanting to explore any further, he went back to the front porch and told Mary something horrible had happened, asked her to contact a local peace officer, Frank Horton, well, some time before Horton arrived, but he was accompanied by the Presbyterian minister, Wesley Ewing, and Dr. J. Clark Cooper and Dr. Edgar Howe. Men conducted a search of the house and found everybody inside was dead. Tyre Moore family, as well as the two Stillinger girls, had been beaten to death with the blunt side of an axe to the point that their skulls had been obliterated. Even the most sympathetic viewers would call the ensuing investigation something of a circus. However, in spite of the confusion, a few useful clues did come to light. There was nothing suggested, uh, though nothing suggested a motive for the killings, it appeared the entire family had been murdered in their sleep sometime between midnight and five in the morning. It appeared that the killer or killers had taken an oil lamp from a cupboard, bent the wick to keep the illumination dim enough not to wake up the victims, and bright enough to, so he or she could see what they were doing. Circumstances suggested the killings began with Josiah and Sarah in the master bedroom and moved to the bedroom next to the parents and killed the four more children. Last to be killed with the two Stillinger girls in the guest room downstairs. Well, it appeared the killer had been in the Moore's barn for some time, watching the house, waiting for the family to go to bed and fall asleep. And though he or she had taken Josiah Moore's own axe and entered the house through an unlocked back door, in the country... Quite often, folks didn't even lock their doors. 
It was a different time, a different world. Evidence suggested 12-year-old Lena Stillinger may have been the only one of the victims to wake up during the attack. From her position on the bed, it appeared she had tried to wiggle away from the attacker. Her nightgown was pulled up around her waist, and her undergarments were under the bed. There's no evidence she'd been uh, raped, though it was impossible to rule out a sexual motive for the killings. Partially clean but still bloody axe was found in the guest bedroom, along with part of a broken keychain. And inexplicably, a two-pound slab of bacon wrapped in a dish towel was found propped against one wall. That was never explained. In the kitchen, a plate of uneaten food was found sitting beside a bowl of bloody water, which suggested the killer had taken the time to prepare himself a meal, though apparently he didn't get a chance to eat it. It was assumed that he had uh, washed his hands in that bowl of bloody water. Inexplicably, the killer had covered the crushed heads of each of the victims with fabric. In the case of Josiah and Sarah, used blankets with the children. It was various pieces of clothing. The killer had also taken the time to cover all the mirrors and windows in the house with aprons and pieces of clothing that he had taken from various dressers throughout the house. And one final factor to be considered was that the investigation determined the murderer went back to each body after killing him to destroy his skull with numerous vicious blows of his axe. The raising of the axe had been so vicious there were multiple gouges found in the ceiling above the Moore's beds. From the fact that nothing was missing except for the keys to the house that had been used to lock all the doors by the killer when uh, he or she left, it's clear that theft had not been the reason for the murders. This left the Police baffled in determining the reason for such a vicious attack. It seemed to them the attack was far too brutal to be random. Looking for a motive, suspicion soon fell on Frank Jones, a prominent member of the community and a state senator. Jones had once owned the farm equipment business. Josiah Moore had worked with him uh, for him for seven years as an equipment salesman. However, Moore left Jones's employment and opened his own business, and took a number of Jones's most profitable accounts with him. There were also unsubstantiated rumors that Moore had also enjoyed the charms of Frank's daughter-in-law. The end result was the two men hated each other to the point they'd cross the street not to have to come in contact with each other. The other reason that Jones was a prime suspect was he was Methodist. Yeah, that was a giveaway right there, folks. Therefore, the Presbyterians were all sure that Frank was the killer. Of course, all the Methodists were just as positive he was innocent. And feelings ran so high that Detective James Wilkerson of Kansas City, who'd been asked to look into the matter, suggested that a grand jury be convened to determine once and for all if Senator Frank had any involvement with the murders. Well, one other thing I wanted to bring to light. I just saw it. I'll make notes to myself of things I want to bring up. Though they kept calling him into the community, Senator Frank, he was actually Frank Jones. From written records, it was clear that Wilkerson didn't really believe that Frank had committed the murders, but he believed that it was very possible Frank had hired somebody to commit these heinous crimes. 
He also thought that he knew who Frank had hired, a man by the name of William Blackie Mansfield. Mansfield long been suspected of the axe murders of his own family in Blue Island, Illinois. Unfortunately for Wilkerson's theory, payroll records of Hewlett Mansfield have been 1,400 miles away from Velasca on the day of the killings. Of course, even though Mansfield was cleared, it didn't stop many from believing that uh, Frank had paid somebody else to kill the Moors. In the end, though, the grand jury didn't return a true bill indicting Frank Jones. The investigation and the rumors have essentially ruined his political career, though. Nobody wants to vote for a killer. Under pressure to solve this heinous crime, authorities grasped at any possible clue that might reveal the killer. Another suspect in town who many suspected might be involved. And though he had no personal beef with the Moors, his actions were odd enough to gain the attention of all who saw him, and his evidence piled up. He really seemed tailor-made to fit the bill for the killer. This particular person was a wandering English preacher by the name of Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly. He was known to authorities as a sexual deviant. In fact, he'd been out of, in and out of mental institutions his entire life. Two days before the Moors were killed, he'd been caught peeping in the windows around town, and there were witnesses who swore that Kelly had been at the Presbyterian Church during church function that the Moors had attended. From the positions and angles of the blows, investigators believed the killer was left-handed, and Kelly was left-handed. And only 3% of the population in general is left-handed. There was evidence Kelly had caught a train out of Alaska about 5 o'clock in the morning before the bodies had been discovered. Witnesses also claimed that at about 5.19 in the morning, Kelly told a couple at the train station a grisly murder had taken place in Alaska. This is about two hours before the bodies were discovered. So also discovered that a, tra- a town down the train line... Uh, Kelly had taken the blood-stained clothes in to be dry-cleaned. Of course, there's a great deal of evidence that Kelly wouldn't exactly play with the full deck. Shannon was short of a picnic, so to speak. A week after the murders, he came back to Valeska, told authorities he was Scotland Yard, and asked for a tour of the murder house. There's really no record of the response the local investigating officers made to this bizarre request. He was actually arrested for the murders in 1917, but after being interrogated, he signed a confession. And though this was thought to end the matter, he recanted his confession, and the witness who claimed that Kelly had told him about the murders two hours before the bodies were discovered reversed their testimony and wouldn't reveal why. Well, a grand jury was convened, which ended in a hung jury. The second grand jury eventually found that there was no evidence that directly tied Kelly to the murders, and eventually he was released. Then there was a transient railway worker by the name of Andy Sawyer. He seemed obsessed with the killings to the point his employer reported his erratic behavior to the police. He was a very strong candidate. Hadn't been the culprit until it was found he'd been arrested for vagrancy in another town on the same day as the murders. Police even considered Josiah's brother-in-law, Sam Moyer, and Roy Van Gilder. Well, this was a long shot. There was a rumor that Sam Moyer and Josiah were enemies, but it was determined that this was based entirely on hearsay. Additionally, Sam could prove he'd been in Nebraska on the day of the killings. 
And finally, there was the possibility that the killings of the Moore family as part of a string of random slayings that had taken place across the Midwest in 1911 and 1912. During these years, there was a string of unsolved axe murders in various towns, all located in close proximity to the railroads. Later revealed that these other killings, there were a number of similarities to the Moore's murder. Almost all of them were carried out with an axe or other weapons found outside the home of the victims, and as in the Moore case, the weapon was left behind. The victims were all bludgeoned to death in their sleep. A few of them had actually been sexually assaulted. In one case, the nightgown was pushed up and the undergarment was thrown under the bed, just like the case of Lena Stillinger. Most of the murders took place on a weekend, usually on Sunday, as in the case of the Moore's murders. And you need to keep in mind that the killings had a lot in common with the story of Jack the Axe Man as well. In some of the cases, the killer attempted or actually carried out a second attack in the same location. It should be noted that the woman who worked the uh, night shift at the Velasca Telephone Exchange reported somebody tried to gain entry to the building at about 2 in the morning, but eventually left. In five of the cases, the killer laid in wait for the victims and had lingered sometime after the killings. In four of the cases, the killer covered the victim's face with blankets or clothing and had covered the mirrors of the windows. In three of the cases, the killer tried to wash the blood from his hands at the scene. In two of the cases, lamps with bent wicks were found in the homes just as at Velasca. But just uh, logically speaking, due to the similarities, there is a strong case for the killings being done by the same person or persons. But in the case of serial killer, it's hard to find the connections needed to make an arrest. Unfortunately, the Valeska Axe murderers, uh, murderer was never found. Another case where the gut of the investigating officials just was not successful. You know, it's... Um, the other day I talked about the lynching of a man named Leo Frank, where he was broken out of prison to be lynched. Well, that was for the murder of a young lady named Mary Fagan. She was 13 years old. And that's always been a case of all wrongdoing on the part of court officials as well as corrupt and incompetent police work at every level. And though Leo Frank was convicted of her murder and then broken out of prison to be hung by a lynch mob, there's a great deal of evidence to indicate that Frank was framed by the police simply because he had the misfortune to be Jewish, and the killer or killers got away. By all accounts, Mary Fagan was a lovely young girl who had grown into a beautiful young woman. Born June 1, 1899, into what was referred to as an established Georgia family of tenant farmers. Now, anything that smacks of the state of Georgia, you can be sure that there was corrupt legal involvement. I can speak for that firsthand. If you doubt me, go to Amazon and get a book called Why Would They Say It? I wrote the book. Well, her father died prior to her birth, so she was raised primarily by her mother, Frances Fagan. And for her part, Frances moved her daughter several times in an attempt to establish a stable home life. 1899, shortly after the birth of her daughter, she moved back to her hometown of Marietta, Georgia, and Sometime in 1907, moved to East Point, Georgia, where she opened a boarding house. It has to be remembered, the early 20th century was a time of child labor. 
Many jobs today we would never dream of allowing a child to perform were in fact routinely filled with children during the, this time period as their wages, of course, were much less than those of an adult worker. And so it was that at the tender age of 10, Mary's mother allowed her to leave school to take part-time uh, job at a textile factory. And while the wages couldn't have been very much, every penny was needed to help keep a roof over the family's head. In 1912, things appeared to be getting better for the Fagans as Francis Fagan married John William Coleman and moved his ready-made family to Atlanta. Spring of 1912, Mary got what to her seemed a dream job at the National Pencil Company. Earned 10 cents an hour operating a curling, uh, curling machine which uh, inserted rubber erasers in the metal tips of uh, pencils. Initially scheduled to work 55 hours a week. Um, well, she would earn $5.50 per week if she worked a full shift, 55 hours in 1912. That was considered a decent wage for a child. At the time of her murder, Georgia was the only state that permitted children as young as 10 to work 11 hours a day in the factories. The attempt to raise the minimum age to 14 was defeated in the state legislature. In 1912, the average wage was 22 cents an hour for an adult worker. Children and women were paid about the same as women in 1912 and earned about 50 to 60 percent of the wages a, a male would earn in that same job. So while the man could make 22 cents an hour, which is considered a nice wage, the women and the children couldn't make over 11 cents an hour. Well, her job location was on the second floor of the factory in the metal room that was located in the section called the tipping department. Located directly across the hall from the office of superintendent of the pencil factory, Leo Frank. Now, April 21st, 1913, Mary was laid off due to a shortage of brass sheet metal. Without this sheet metal, um, she couldn't run her machine or install the erasers on the tip of the pencil. And since there was little in the way of job security for unskilled workers in 1913, she was left wondering how to earn a living. And since every penny was important to this young wage earner, she was not prepared to forego anything she may have earned at the pencil company. And so it was that on the afternoon of April 26, 1913, Mary Fagan made a fateful trip to the company to get her last paycheck, which amounted to a grand total of $1.20. Unfortunately for her, on this same date, she met her killer. As near as the beginning determined, the murder took place either late in the evening of Saturday, Saturday, April 26, 1913, or early on the morning of Sunday, April 27th. Body was discovered by Newt Lee, the night watchman, at about 3 o'clock in the morning, on the 27th. Now, at that hour, of course, the factory was deserted, cold, and dark. It was late April in Atlanta. It was still uh, get quite cold at night, as this was... Uh, Since the heat in the factory, which came from a boiler in the basement, was set low to conserve heating fuel and keep operating costs as low as possible. Actually, two different stories about how and why Newt Lee found the body of Mary Fagan. First story was he was the night watchman, and it was his duty to make rounds of each floor of the deserted plant each hour and to punch a time clock every 30 minutes on each floor. Uh, the only light he had was a hand-carried lantern. 
In the second floor, about the second story about how and why he found the body was that Lee had to go to the toilet, and the only place he could go was located in the basement. However, based on the earliest accounts of this case, that's probably not true, as there were bathrooms for the, in the work areas for the employees. According to reports, he was tired on this particular night, even though he'd been given some unexpected time off in the afternoon by Leo Franks. And having been on the job for some months, he'd become used to wandering around that huge factory building in the dark. His footsteps and his own breathing, the only sounds he ever heard. So he couldn't have been said to be especially alert as he patrolled the dark, deserted second floor. Punched the time clock and started down the narrow stairs toward the first floor. Well, he didn't find anything out of the ordinary on the first floor. Opened a trap door and uh, over the scuttle hole that led to the pitch black basement. Took a firm grip on the metal handle of the lantern and slowly descended the narrow ladder to the basement of the silent factory. If there was an area where he was especially cautious, it was in this very dark, silent, tomb-like area. Basement was lit after a fashion. It was a gas jet that uh, was always left burning, though it was turned down low. Slowly he turned, his lantern light illuminating every corner of that dark area. First three corners were empty as always, but when he turned his lantern toward the boiler, he saw something that shouldn't have been there. He thought he, his eyes were paying tricks on him, so he moved closer to the boiler to examine what lay on the floor. And he was looking at the body of a child. The body he discovered was that of Mary Fagan. According to police reports, the girl was discovered in the rear of the basement near the incinerator. Dress was pulled up around her waist, and a strip of her petticoat had been torn off and wrapped around her neck. Her face was blackened and scratched, and her head was bruised and battered as if she'd been severely beaten. A seven-foot strip of quarter-inch wrapping cord was tied into a loop around her neck and buried a quarter-inch deep, showing she'd apparently died from strangulation. Her underwear was still around her slim hips, but it was stained with blood and torn open. Skin was covered with ashes and dirt from the floor of the basement. Initial impression of the investigating officers was she and her killer had struggled in the basement before she was overpowered. Now there was a service ramp at the rear of the basement that led to a sliding door that opened into the alley behind the building. During the investigation it was discovered that the lock of the sliding door had been tampered with so it could be opened from the outside without being unlocked. And even though there was a lot of discussion that some, only somebody with access to the plant could have entered the basement, this really wasn't true. Well, on this particular note, we come to the end of today's show. Tomorrow's show, we'll talk in detail about the facts of the murder of Mary Fagan and what led to the, the murder of Leo Franks. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.